This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Mind Your Business, live from the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs, California. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Hello, welcome to a special two-hour episode of Mind Your Business, live from the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs. You're listening to SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Lauren Feldman, and I'm the Chief Content Officer at the Oxford Center. Uh, the Oxford Center is a community of business owners. We're, uh, we're building a platform um, that we're hoping will engage those business owners uh, across the country. But more about that in uh, future weeks and months as we get going. Uh, as you may recall, I used to be Senior Editor for Entrepreneurship at Forbes, before that, I was at the New York Times and at Inc. doing uh, similar stuff, uh, always trying to uh, try to engage business owners in a conversation, which is exactly what we're going to do today with a really impressive lineup of entrepreneurs who are here for this uh, great event. The, uh, the EY Strategic Growth Forum is an annual invite-only event with more than 2,000 CEOs and founders. Uh, we're honored to be here. Uh, a big thank you to EY for hosting us. Uh, this is a little bit different for us. Normally, we invite our listeners to call in and ask questions, uh, but today we're going to uh, spend our time talking to some of these uh, really impressive entrepreneurs, getting uh, their insights on their journey, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what they wish, what they know now, they they wished they'd known back then. Uh, among others, we're going to talk to Nick Friedman, co-founder and president of College Hunks Hauling Junk, Matt O'Hare founder and CEO of Vital Farms, Richard Grader, president and CEO of Grader's Ice Cream, Deborah Jasper and Betsy Hubbard, co-founders of Mindset Digital, Joelle Faulkner, founder and president of Area One Farms, and Heather Payne, CEO of HackerU. Um, we're going to start right now, jump right into it because we have a limited time with Nick Friedman. Um, Nick is co-founder and president of College Hunks Hauling Junk. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very honored to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, did you debate the name a lot? You know, the name started, we were in college uh, going into our senior year, and my buddy from high school, his mom had this beat-up cargo van, and she said, listen, you're not going to be sitting around the pool all summer. You guys got to go out and make some money and do something productive. And she's actually the one that suggested the name. She's, she said, I got the perfect name for you, College Hunks, dot, dot, dot. We will haul your junk. <laughs> and we all kind of busted out laughing at first. <laughs> that has a <laughs> double meaning there. Exactly. Yeah, we kind of busted out laughing. We were like, well, it's got a catchy ring to it, so let's shorten it, College Hunks Hauling Junk. We literally just put it on computer printout flyers and stuck it in our neighbor's mailboxes, and the phone started ringing. People had a need for the service. They thought the name was catchy, not something they typically associated with moving or junk removal. And so that was really the first light bulb moment for us. So no market research, no... <laughs> Uh, no focus groups? No, nope, it was just, you know, computer printout flyers. That was our, our focus groups. And, uh, again, people had a need for the service. Now, actually, we made HUNKS an acronym, uh, which stands for Honest, Uniformed, Nice, Knowledgeable Service. So by that definition, <laughs> we still both qualify. And, uh, you know, it just kind of broadens the, uh, the, the applicant pool a little bit. I love it. So you were initially just looking to fill a summer. When did you begin to suspect you had a real business? So our senior year of college, uh, we actually submitted a business plan to an entrepreneurship competition at the University of Miami, and it won first prize. So it gave us a little more confidence in the idea, a little more credibility. We graduated and got corporate jobs and hated it. I emailed my business partner about three months into it and said, hey, what's our timeline for starting the business on a full scale? Go back. If you won the competition, (laughs) you submitted this business plan, why didn't you stick with it? Why did you go for corporate jobs? Great question. We had always been brought up to follow, follow that traditional career path. You get a degree, you get a corporate job, you climb the corporate ladder. So entrepreneurship wasn't even uh, an option to us. It was just more of a college gig at the time. But this wasn't that long ago, was it? When, when were you in school? This was about 12 years ago. So, yeah. so entrepreneurship had already hit. Exa- uh, it had already hit, but I actually didn't even really know what the word was until we started. People were like, yo, you're going to be an entrepreneur? And I was like, oh, I guess that's what that word means. Uh, and of course, when we did quit our jobs, our parents, uh, you know, eyebrows raised, you're going to quit your jobs to do what? Haul junk? And the company's going to be called College Hunks. You know, you're going to throw away your college degree to start a trash business. And you said, wait a second, this was your idea. You- that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, it was at my business partner's mom's. It was the one who had the idea. My parents were a little bit more conservative, uh, but uh, we went for it. And, uh, you know, I always tell the story. When we first started, we were doing all the work ourselves. So we were driving the truck, answering the phone, hauling the junk. And we had the 800 number 
uh, on the back of the truck routed to our cell phone. So people would call to complain about the erratic driving, and I'd be in the driver's seat answering the phone, <laughs> apologizing on the other end of the line, saying, listen, we don't condone that driving in our company. We'll tell those guys to be safer on the road when they get back to the office. And we fired ourselves at least three or four times that first summer once we started full time. That's great. Um, how far did you go before you started actually hiring people? You know, one of our mentors, uh, we started to burn out a little bit because we were doing all the work ourselves. And, you know, you do what you got to do when you first get started. And one of our mentors recommended to us a book called The E-Myth Revisited by a guy named Michael sure. Gerber, of course. And that book's Work on the business, not in the work business. Work on the business, not in the business. Create systems and processes for your business to scale. So that was like the next light bulb moment for us. If we're ever going to have another truck, let alone another location, we've got to start documenting how we do everything. So probably about six months into doing all the work ourselves is when we started documenting those systems and being able to hire people and uh, you know, eventually grow a, a fleet of trucks and then eventually franchise, which is what we've been doing now for the past 10 years. Tell, tell us about the decision to franchise. That's uh, a mixed bag. A lot of people have had great success with it. A lot of people have really struggled with it. Things can go wrong. What did you think about it before you guys made that choice? So we got into franchising with a little bit of a glamorized notion about what it was actually going to entail. We thought, okay, you know, franchising will sit back and collect royalties and we'll uh, collect a fee for when everybody wants to open up a new one of these locations. It actually requires a lot more work than that. You got to train and, and manage and support the franchise owners to help them be successful. So uh, I think we got into it thinking it was going to be easier and then once we got into it we realized we couldn't turn around and go back so we just kind of kept following down that path and surrounded ourselves with great mentors in the international franchise association and so forth but we really had a vision of being a national brand and we didn't have a lot of monetary resources we didn't have a lot of human resources to deploy into other markets and so franchising was the most logical expansion strategy capitalization strategy for us to get the brand out there across the country did you have to raise money to, to franchise, or was that a way to avoid raising money? It, it was kind of in and of itself a way to avoid raising money. We, we self-funded the franchise development efforts and the model uh, using our corporate location that we started up in Washington, D.C. So our local moving and hauling operation helped fund the franchise development process and the manuals and legal documentation and then ultimately the team. Uh, and then once we started franchising, every time we would sell a franchise, it was sort of like a small injection of capital that we could then go out to build out the infrastructure and, and scale our team even further. The, the great fear with franchising is that no matter how much time and energy you put into training, you're never going to find people who care about the business the way you do and run it the way you would run it. Uh, how did you deal with finding the right people? You know, it, it was very difficult at the beginning uh, because in the early days we were bootstrapped and, and needed capital. And so uh, we fell sort of victim to the same mistakes that a lot of early franchisors make, which was sell a franchise to anybody who was willing to write a check and could fog a mirror. And that can backfire on you very quickly if you don't get people that believe in what you're doing with, as far as the vision of the company, the core values of the company, uh, the service philosophy of the company. And so uh, we had to kind of deal and help, and help sort of rotate some of those folks out from the early days. Now, with over 100 franchises across the country, we can be a lot more discerning and uh, de uh, really de de decide who we want to let into the franchise organization that we think is going to have the most uh, potential to be successful and also to really represent the brand in a positive way out in their market. Uh, because everybody in the franchise organization is invested in the same thing, which is the brand and the service reputation online and, and in the communities that we that we service as well. When you started out, did you go out looking for people kind of like yourselves, college hunks who were ready to do every job it, it took to get something off the ground? We did, um, and that was a mixed bag. You know, we found that some uh, of the young early franchisors that we attracted uh, – Maybe they had some family that helped them get into the business, and so they didn't have as much drive or grit as maybe we had in our early days, whereas others did have that drive or grit. So really what we look for is, is, is in a franchise owner is not so much about age or gender or, or professional background or anything for that matter. It's really about, you know, are they willing to put in the effort to make the business successful? Because when you buy a franchise, it's almost like a gym membership for your financial success. When you join a gym, you've got fitness goals. You get access to all the different equipment, the personal trainers, the coaches, the workout groups. But you still got to go to the gym and do the work. When you buy a franchise, you get all the tools of, of how to become a successful business owner. But it's still up to you to execute and to be committed to making it successful. So, you know, now we've got a lot of veteran-owned franchises. Over 10% of our system are veteran-owned, which is awesome. You know, uh, uh, stay-at-home moms that decided they want to get back in the workforce once their kids graduated. They want to become a, a, a business owner. 
uh, running our franchises. We got you know the, the name uh, Hunks Hauling Junk doesn't scare women away. And no, actually, you know it it, it really uh, is all about trust and care, and and you know it's tongue in cheek, it's quirky, it's playful, and that's really what we're trying to create with that brand is to be sort of that pattern interrupt, not what people typically associate with with a negative experience that they might associate with moving or hauling. That's great. Um, you said that it was a mixed bag initially hiring people like you. What, what did you learn about finding the right people? What, you know, is, is it something in questions that you ask? Is it something in their background? How, how do you identify the, the right franchisee? You know, that's a great question. Uh, we try to look for, first of all, we have four core values in our company. We're a values-based organization, very purpose-driven organization. And so we l- try to look for people that first and foremost identify with our core values. Building leaders is one of them. Do they identify with the idea of mentoring the young men and women that they're going to be hiring uh, to be the, the front-line face of the company? Uh, or are they going to look at just hiring anybody to, to fill a spot on the truck and, and to lift the other end of the couch? Because we want to put a positive impression out in the communities. Uh, you know, are they, listen, fulfill the lights, another one of our core values. Are they actually fun people to be around? Are we going to enjoy working with these individuals? So we try to ask questions that that sort of peel into their personality a little bit, uh, first and foremost. And because franchising is kind of unique. It's not an employee-employer relationship. We can't really fire them. And it's not your traditional business partnership uh, where you're just based off an operating agreement. There's this, sort of this unique uh, relationship that's very intra-connected and, uh, you know, intra-reliant. And so uh, we, we look into those questions. And we also want to look, you know, do they have examples of success professionally uh, that they can point to where they – had an impact where they had to exhibit grit and determination, whether it was their prof- professional career uh, or in their personal lives. And, and those, and we actually, we actually now have a whole uh, committee panel that reviews and interviews our prospective franchise owners to see uh, if they're going to be a good fit for our organization. What do you do when you have a franchisee that you would like to fire but can't? You know, uh, we try to have direct conversations. Uh, it, it actually, uh, one of the speakers yesterday, Alex Rodriguez, was talking about, you know, not hiding behind email or text message, but, you know, having a, a face-to-face or, in, in, if necessary, a phone call or, or web uh, conference. And, and just have that direct conversation up front uh, that maybe it's not working out. You know, here's what we're seeing uh, that are either not in line with our core values or not in line with the standards of our brand uh, service expectations. Uh, and is this something that we need to work on to improve? Is this something that we maybe need to work together to exit and separate from each other? Uh, But it's just like any relationship. You've got to have that communication uh, and you've got to be direct about it. You can't kind of hide behind email or or text. So we try to get out in front of it and and make sure that uh, if the relationship is breaking down, uh, that we can separate amicably and not have to get attorneys involved or, or pull out the franchise agreement and start waving it around like a hammer. (laughs) How do you, how do you manage uh, franchisees? Um, you know, in terms of keeping track of what they're doing, I assume you have key performance indicators that you're watching. How often do you check in with them? And Absolutely. Um, so we really, as a franchisor, we want to be a uh, resource for our franchise owner. So we actually operate an inbound call center uh, that answers all of the phone calls on behalf of the franchisees. And we have a proprietary software system that we developed that integrates the call center uh, with the franchisee's schedule, uh, with uh, the client interfacing uh, uh, act, act, uh, aspects of the business. So it's all fully integrated. So you deal with all the inbound calls from potential customers and then send them to the franchisees? Yeah, so we have over 100 fran- uh, call center agents that answer our, the phones in our central office in Tampa. We handle over 2,000 calls a day uh, for our franchise owners, and that books the appointments into the software system, uh, and that captures all the data, the client information, the job information, uh, the average job size, close percentages, uh, profit. We also actually offer an optional bookkeeping service for our franchise owners, which we have over 50 percent of our franchise owners taking advantage of so that gives us a consistent chart of accounts that we can provide to our franchise owners uh, for benchmarking purposes to say hey look you know your labor rate is 28 percent our system is 25 percent uh what can you do what can we, how can we help you get that three percent down to get more profit out of your business so we get a lot of really good data uh in our business that has uh helped us help our franchise owners be much more profitable and ultimately more fulfilled so how big have uh, have you gotten now? Um, how much of the country do you cover? Sure. So we've got over 100, uh, we got about 110 franchises, a little over 100 franchise owners currently in 36 states. 
this year we're going to do a little over 100 million in uh, system-wide revenues, uh, which we're really excited about. It's our first time uh, eclipsing the 100 million dollar mark. So our average franchisee is doing over a million in annual top-line revenue, uh, which is really exciting. So uh, you know it's taken us a long way, a long time to get here. We always say no overnight success happens overnight, and uh, you know it's it's finally we're at scale and we're having a lot of uh, fun doing it and we've got a lot of great uh, momentum ahead of us that uh, we're going to continue to build on because we've been finally been able to bring in some really awesome team members into our corporate staff as well uh, that are going to help build out the model even further, build out the technology, the marketing strategies, and so forth. You, you mentioned the technology. I know you, you said that the software that you use to help manage the franchisees is proprietary. Is that something you're trying to develop and sell to other systems? You know, I guess that's to be determined. You know, we call it hunkware, and it's really it's it, it's <laughs> we were using an off-the-shelf franchise manage, management software, and uh, we decided to bring it in-house uh, just because there were some customizations that we wanted to create on our own. Uh, right now, what it does is it just makes the business run more efficiently. It makes our franchise owners' job more uh, effortless. It makes the the guys that are working for them uh, jobs easier out in the field, and it makes the customer experience better. So we're doing things like uh, layering and some of the Uber-like technology into our assets of labor and, and and vehicles, where the client can get a notification that shows the hunks are on the way, and they can track the truck, and they can get see who's actually going to be showing up to do the work, uh, and gives a, a higher level of trust and care of who's coming into their home to move their, their belongings. So, you know, at some point, maybe that could be a value to whether it be a strategic partner or something that we could package and, and white label. But right now, it's really just to give us a competitive advantage over our competitors. Where do you see this headed? What are, what's the potential? What's the goal? You know, uh, we think we haven't scratched the surface. I mentioned to you that, you know, our average franchisee does about a million in top-line revenue. Uh, we think that the potential in our business and just our brand uh, is well over four to five million per franchise. So uh, we're going to continue to double down, triple down on helping our existing franchisees grow their unit volume, while at the same time looking to bring on additional franchise owners uh, into the system. So uh, we've got, as I mentioned, about 110. We want to get to 300 here in the next three to five years. Uh, we think that's very doable because of the way the model is set up. And uh, you know, the sky's the limit. We just eclipsed that $100 million mark, so $500 million is sort of the next target that we're sort of uh, marching towards. You, uh, you, you're looking to hire, or not hire, but sign up uh, and list a bunch of new franchisees in the coming years. If anybody listening might be interested in that, what are, what are the financial requirements? What, what do you look for? Yeah, so we uh, the overall investment is roughly between one hundred to 150000 so it's a moderate in moderate to lower end investment as far as franchises are concerned because of course you can get into food or retail where you're spending half a million or a million dollars or more just to open a you know a subway restaurant or uh, uh, any sort of uh, retail uh, franchise concept so uh, typically a franchise needs about fifty thousand liquid they've got to have pretty good uh, credit to be able to get loans to lease the vehicles and get open for business and uh, you know aside from that they just got to be motivated and driven and excited to build a brand in this uh, in this industry and, and help mentor the the young people that they're going to be hiring to put out and, and be the face of the brand do you handle all the marketing or do you enlist uh, your franchisees help with that we create all of the marketing and we provide sort of a central hub for it from the website, which is where we get the bulk of our leads from, uh, to the social media pages. And then we also provide the tools and the vendors for uh, the franchise owners to deploy the marketing in their local market as well. So we do a lot of guerrilla marketing too, by the way, just old fashioned grassroots marketing, truck parking our branded vehicles in visible locations like billboards, putting out the little bandit signs like the political yard signs out in the medians. Uh, you know, just kind of the, some of the things that worked for us in the early days when we were literally just bootstrapping the business ourselves, uh, we still coach our franchisees to do because it works. We're going to have to let you go in a second. Yeah. Nick, any tips about uh, digital marketing? Has anything in particular been uh, worthwhile for you there? You know, for digital marketing, it, it's... Uh, it's, I think some of the interesting things now are behavioral-based. Uh, so, for example, we can uh, deliver display ads and Facebook ads uh, for people that have just listed their homes for sale or for people that have just gone through a, uh, uh, activities that are rel related to moving services. And, and I think that behavioral uh, approach is really interesting because you can get hyper-focused and hyper-targeted with who you're uh, trying to get to see your services and see your brand. So that's something we've been doing recently that I think is really effective as well. Nick Friedman, uh, co-founder of College Hunks Hauling Junk. 
thanks so much for joining hey, us. I really enjoyed it. speaking with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Appreciate it. Joining us now is Matt O'Hare, founder and CEO of Vital Farms. Matt, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hey, Lauren. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. Uh, we were We were at an event recently uh, in New York City. It's great to see you again. I'm glad you got, you, they let you out in time for good, be, good behavior. <laughs> very happy to be here. Uh, and uh, very happy to have another opportunity to chat with you. Same here. Um, your, uh, your business, uh, I, I talk about your business all the time. It, uh, it really fascinates other entrepreneurs. I think there's so many things, interesting lessons that you've learned. Um, I want to get to how you get people to pay uh, as much as $8 a dozen, I believe, for uh, a dozen eggs. Uh, and I want to talk to you about how you finance this business in a really creative way that's allowed you to kind of uh, have your cake and eat it too. Um, but let's start with uh, a little bit of your journey. You actually got into the egg business when you were in high school, right? Actually, junior high school. I was uh, seventh grade. Uh, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island. And my uncle uh, had paid his way through Brown in the 30s selling eggs door to door. And so he took me to, um, to a farm outside of in, in central Rhode Island, and we uh, showed me how the whole process works and laying, of the, you know, hen laying the eggs and the gathering and washing and packing. And uh, I started ordering a case of eggs a week, and then I'd pack them in little cartons and sell them door-to-door in Providence. Like a paper route. Yeah, pretty much on the Brown campus and around uh, Fox Point, the little area. Was, uh, mainly my customers were immigrants who hadn't seen a fresh egg since they left the home country. And uh, I had to learn to say eggs in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and of course, you know, occasional um, political demonstrations. I sold a lot more eggs during those events. Not to be eaten, I assume. Yes, not to be eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Did you charge more for these special eggs that were, you know, homegrown? Or, um... You know, the funny thing about egg pricing is that uh, the eggs have gotten so cheap over the years because... After World War II, we started putting uh, hens in cages. They thought, you know, it would be easier to control them when the soldiers were overseas and, and the spouses were home trying to take care of the farm. And when they got back, they said, oh, that's pretty easy. We don't have to chase them around anymore. So let's put a second one and a third one and a fourth one in a cage. And we started really torturing these birds. So the price of eggs, when I was selling them in, in uh, door-to-door in Providence in the late 60s, is almost the same as a cheap egg is today. Uh, because it's you know it's, it's such a commodity adjusted for inflation, yeah. Because they're you're, you're dealing with the most tortured farm animal in the world. You know they stick them in these cages. They can't stand up. They can't flap their wings. They can't turn around. So the pricing was cheap then, and it's still cheap today. Um, interesting. So um, you did this business on the side uh, while you were in school. Uh-huh. What did you do after high school? After high school, I uh, told a white lie to my parents. Told them I was taking a year off. Uh, before I went to college, I had gotten into a couple of schools, and I decided that nope. In my own mind, I said I'm tired of school. I'm an entrepreneur. I've always known I've been an entrepreneur. I already had a half a dozen little businesses. You were way ahead of your time. Uh, people didn't do that back then. Well, I just love the process. I think you know that the the process of building a business is an art form, and it's it's you know there's this place is full of of entrepreneurs right now. There's two thousand people here that. And a bunch of them, you know, the majority of them are entrepreneurs. And, you know, our medium is, you know, we don't paint on canvas. We paint with the business. We come up with, with ideas, and sometimes they're really crappy. And, uh, and the work doesn't sell. <laughs> it doesn't make it into anybody's studio or anybody's, you know, show. But sometimes it, 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 it comes together nicely, and it's fun to do that. And, and if you're an entrepreneur, then you get joy out of that, lots of joy out of it. And you love what you're doing. So... Um, so before we get to your current business, tell us about the business that you start that you started in in the, in the travel business and lost as a result of nine eleven. Oh, you're going to make me do that again? Yes, please. Well, that's sad. Okay, <laughs> but it lays the groundwork for your success that followed, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I think every failure is, is a building block of success. Uh, otherwise, uh, you're looking for a bridge to jump off of. But yeah, it was you know that business was probably business number forty. Uh, it was a company I started uh, in. Actually, I bought a little company. They owed us, owed us money in my previous business. And uh, I bought the company for next to nothing. They had a, maybe a million dollars in sales. And uh, when I sold the master company the, that I had bought it from, we kept that little business. And I grew that up to about $50 million in travel sales over the course of about five or six years with a great team. And uh, 
they, we sold travel to airline employees. Airline employees fly for free, uh, so they most airline employees have their job because they they want to fly for free and go places. What they don't have is the hotels and the cruises. And that was our part. So the cruise lines would heavily discount those to us, and we'd sell them to airline employees for half price. And it was a great business model, except for whenever there was an air crash of any type, our sales took a big dip. And on 9-11, I was in New York uh, running down towards the World Trade Center because I thought I might be able to help when I you know, saw the, knew the planes had hit. Uh, and uh, along, halfway down the West Side Highway around Chelsea, uh, the first tower came down. And I knew at that point. And I was on the phone. I had actually gotten some phone calls through and found that they... You know, it was happening all over the country in, the, uh, in several other places, in the Pentagon and Pennsylvania, and realized that my business was going to take go south. And it went overnight from a million a week to nothing, zero, and actually went negative. People wanted their money back because they couldn't travel anywhere. Twenty percent of all the airline employees in the country were laid off, and as a result of that, they weren't flying anymore. They weren't taking vacations, the ones that were there. So I sold the business for a public company. We had taken public on NASDAQ in 98, and they sold it for next to, or it was pretty much zero, five, six weeks later. And you had been taking the winnings from previous companies that you'd founded and sold and putting them into the, your next venture. Uh, is that right? Yeah, never take the, when you're playing craps, don't take the win and put it all back on the, on the, <laughs> on the pass line and do it again. A lot of people do that. You've got to take some of those chips off the table. And uh, so this time I had you know, gone maybe six or seven businesses in a row where I'd sold them, put the money back into the next business, and learned some lessons from that. Which leads us to Vital Farms, your current venture. Uh, tell us how you started that. Well, I took five years off and became a sailor and, uh, and a captain of a sailboat and a charter captain and, and my, my newfound girlfriend, who's now my wife, and we sailed around for five years, and I quickly got bored of, not bored, but you know, I was an entrepreneur in, in cooking meals and taking people scuba diving every day. So Five years. It wasn't that quick that you uh, no. got tired of it. Well, it's, you know, it is. <laughs> Sounds a, pretty good. It's a fun, it was a fun life, living in the Caribbean and, and, uh, and taking people on a boat all the time and cooking for them. But, uh, uh, but yeah, after a while, I, I knew I wanted to start up another business. Did you make money doing that? Or, uh, yeah. yeah, it was a business. And, we, of course, I started ancillary businesses at the same time. I had a yacht charter brokerage business, so we were booking people on other yachts. And... Uh, but ultimately, I, I decided to, you know, I wanted to do something that was more in line with what I had done before, you know. And so I looked at different businesses, and, and uh, uh, one of the models that really excited me was the fact that I had had these great eggs on a previous farm before, delicious eggs from chickens that were running around on pasture. And when they were on pasture, the egg yolks turned this darker orange color, and they tasted delicious. And uh, I know that when it was cold out for, let's say, a week or so, and I had them more in a in a cooped-up area, the yolks would go back to just this pale yellow that you get when you eat at a you know, restaurant. And that's because they just have that one diet with, of corn. And the eggs in the United States, in this country, all, the birds eat 100% corn in their diet pretty much. Well, 70 80% corn, and the rest is a little bit of soybean meal and some other stuff, but calcium. But they all taste the same. But when they're on pasture, they have this salad at their disposal, and they eat that, and it does taste, change the taste. So I wondered if I could scale that. Can we, can we get farmers to do a system like I do? So, so you started with your own farm, right? Yep. But, uh, but, well, it was a piece of land in South Austin, Texas. And we turned it into a farm. We got a, you know, 20 chickens and then 1,000 baby chicks and then 4,000 old spent hens. And, and uh, pretty soon I'm selling eggs to Whole Foods in Midwest. And uh, it took off. And so we kind of wrote a manual. At first it was a page and a half for the farmer. Here's what you have to do to be a vital farmer. And uh, that is now hundreds of pages in a binder, uh, but it, uh, it built up to we were able to scale it and let, have other farmers do the exact same thing that, uh, that we were doing, and we paid them more for it. Obviously, it costs more to produce eggs that way. You have to charge more. How did that go? Did people immediately uh, accept the uh, the premise that these eggs were worth paying more for? No, at first I had you know I I collect the eggs after the chickens grew to the age that they can lay it, and I collect the eggs and I wash the eggs by hand and I put them in a cooler. I didn't even have a cooler. I bought a bunch of of um, refrigerators on Craigslist. So I had them all in, in series, and we'd pack them into the refrigerator and uh, and then. I would be out there selling, and I was asking wholesale, $3.93 a dozen. And uh, I was not getting the sales, and so I'd pack them in my truck and take them to the food bank. 
<laughs> so sad. <laughs> it was really sad. Not and, for the food bank. Yeah, the food bank loved us. You know, we still today give millions of eggs a year to the weight of the food bank. It's part of our, you know, what we do. And, and but that was it was a sad trip for me to to have all that work and, and not have revenue. But slowly but surely, I started getting restaurants. And at one point, we've had we had up to three hundred restaurants in Austin using our eggs. What changed? What was the, the, the what convinced people? Well, I think getting into grocery was a big step for us. Uh, well, first of all, the restaurants, because they tasted them. You know, the nice thing about selling uh, pasture-raised eggs from Vital Farms is you're really selling crack. You know, you just have to get people to try it one time, and then you got them, because they can't eat that. <laughs> you can't eat a, a commodity egg after that. And so, um, you know, you get them to try it. It's and addictive. It is. Well, I mean, it's, it's different. People think an egg is an egg is an egg, because they look the same on the outside from a shell. But it's not the same when you feed them. A, pa- a diet of, of pasture, and you tre- and you actually live up to your commitments year round of having birds outdoors year round in a, an environment where they can do that. So, um, I used to work at Forbes, uh, where we published a story about your uh, business. What, what is, is that? A magazine? It's a magazine. No um, and uh, in that story, I, I know you didn't provide this number, but the story said that you're in the area of uh, doing a hundred million dollars a year in revenue. I know that didn't come from you, but it was a, a Forbes estimate. But the point is, you've built a national business doing this. You no, are no longer just selling to Whole Foods or that kind of uh, organic or natural uh, shopper. You're selling in mainstream uh, supermarkets. Mm-hmm. How did you finance that, that growth? Well, um, we, one thing I've tried to do with this business is make sure it cash flow from the very beginning. So you can, but even cash flowing a business, you have to ultimately get outside capital to finance things like uh, uh, growing inventory and growing uh, receivables as you build a business. So uh, I had been run public companies before, uh, but I decided after the last one, I never wanted to be a public company again. Learned that lesson. So we the obvious to, regulation, not wanting to deal with well, it's just the time. And then of course, you know, you give stock options to your employees, and they have a strike price. And then, you know, the market, you can't control the price of the market. So if your stock takes a dip and, and those options are no longer in the money, you've got employees that are looking for the door potentially, uh, or at least they're not very happy with their stock options as a form of compensation. So there's a lot of negatives of being public. And there's so much private equity out there today. Uh, I think I saw a desk over here. Look at this, private equity or someplace around here. Yeah, over there. <laughs> <laughs> they have, you know, it's, they're everywhere. Um, well, especially here. That's yeah. one of the reasons everybody's here. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I call it the new public markets. Um, you know, private equity is so uh, vast, so many of them out there today, thousands of them, with lots of capital to invest. And there's really not enough, a big need to go public anymore. So we went to, uh, we did our first private equity offering in 2013. I sold, I didn't need the money for the company but I sold 10% of, of the company of my shares. And uh, that gave me a liquidity event, and it gave me a, a strong feeling like, wow, I don't have to ever sell this company. I could keep doing this every few years, sell a little bit, just a little bit at a time as the value of the company went up. I'd have to sell less to get the same amount of money in. And, uh, and so it, was, it turned out to be a kind of a fun thing. It gave value to the stock options of my employees. They'd get a liquidity event for their vested options. It gave, uh, and it gave private equity a liquid market for their shares. So, you know, this year we're doing another one of these deals, and and, uh, and some of the early private equity investors that came in back in 2013 and 14 are going to be selling a little bit of their shares. None of them want to sell at all, but they are selling a little bit, and it gives that, you know, so it feels like running a public company with one trading day a year. That's a really cool concept. It also, going back to the travel business that you lost, it gave you an opportunity to take some money off the table so that the same thing doesn't happen again. Not that you expect Vital Farms to, to go under. Yeah, but yeah, it's true. It have, you never know what's going to happen. 9-11 was so unexpected. And we had a very successful business that was all of a sudden gone, you know, uh, because it actually it wasn't gone. The, the new buyers pulled it out of the, out of the ashes. And, uh, but they sold the business uh, in the beginning of 2017, which was 16 years after they bought it, and their sales were about double where we were. Wow. Uh, we would have been in 2001. So uh, it was a long that for a guy like myself who loves to run fast growing companies, uh, that was a lot of blocking and tackling. And uh, yeah. Back to the, uh, the joys of private equity, w- one of the complaints you hear most often is that if an entrepreneur sells uh, a stake in the company and the business to a private equity firm, 
that private equity firm generally has a, uh, a time frame in mind. They want to get their returns within a certain number of years, and that can often force entrepreneurs to do things they wouldn't normally do in building their business. Have you managed to uh, avoid that scenario? Yeah, I mean, private equity is no different than bank financing, no different than anything else in business. You want to get the money before you need it. So if, if you plan ahead, uh, and, and so you really have to get out there, get an investment bank to work with you, and, and do your raise before you need the money. And what that gives you an opportunity to do is to, to, to interview the, the private equity firms. In other words, this is a marriage. You know, you don't go into marriage just because, you know, uh, you know you're, you're in love with this person. They have to be in love with you, too. And so we really go through this process, and we, we interview the, the private equity firm. We make sure that they meet our criteria. We only deal with, in our case, what we call impact investors, uh, investors that really believe in our mission uh, as, a, as a mission-driven company. to bring. Are out they hard to find? No, they're not. There's 200-plus uh, private equity firms now that have the sole mission of, of, of investing in, in mission-driven companies. And uh, companies like ours that are certified B Corps that are focused on a conscious type of capitalism as opposed to only focusing on their shareholder in the bottom line. You know, we focus on all of our, our stakeholders equally, our employees, our customers, our, our vendors. Uh, the environment and the community is one of our stakeholders. And, and, and then, of course, our, our uh, our investors, our shareholders. Um, Matt, I know you uh, want to get back to this uh, terrific conference. I'm curious, do you feel like a little bit of a fish out of water here? Do you feel like uh, you're uh, you know, kind of running against the grain with the way you've built your business and with the idea that you don't ever have to sell it? I think a lot of people here uh, are, are here because they do expect to exit at some point, and perhaps the sooner the better. Well, I think you know the main focus here is Entrepreneur of the Year, which is was, we've been, um, we you know won the Central Texas chapter, I guess, in our category. So it was kind of an honor to be here, and really, it's an honor for my employees and our, what we call our crew members. So to me, that's the main reason I'm here. I'm not and the event. This is just the event that leads up to it, and there's a lot of interesting folks here. The resort is gorgeous. I'm pretty shocked, having been in the resort travel business, I didn't expect this place to be so so wonderful, and the food, pretty amazing. It's a pretty cool so, place. My wife is is joining me this afternoon uh, because uh, I was raving about it. So, excellent, Matt O'Hare. Thank you so much for joining us on Mind Your Business, Lauren. It's always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. I guess I'll see you next week. I hope so. <laughs> I would enjoy that. <laughs> if you want to know more about Matt, go to vitalfarms.com. You can also follow Vital Farms on Twitter at Vital Farms. You are listening to Mind Your Business here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Warden School, Channel One Thirty Two. And I'm here with my next guest, Richard Grader, President and CEO of Grader's Ice Cream. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Richard. Thank you, Lauren. Happy to be here. Really appreciate it. You have a family business that's been around for how many generations? Four. You're in the third? I am the fourth generation the fourth. with my two cousins, Bob and Chip, and we've been around since 1870, so coming up on our 150th anniversary. That's unbelievable. I was at Forbes last year when it celebrated its 100th anniversary, and we thought that was impressive. Um, and I know family businesses don't always make it to the second generation. The, the numbers are, are kind of stark. Uh, I don't have them at the tip of my tongue. Yeah, they can be pretty depressing. I think uh, maybe a third, but I think less than 2% make it to the fourth generation. So we've managed to beat the curve there. That's pretty amazing. Any particular secrets to that? Well, what do you attribute that to? Stubbornness. <laughs> um, Stubbornness, re- refusing to give up during tough times, which I'm sure, I'm sure there must have been a few. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really sure I could tell you exactly why we managed to beat the odds, but uh, I know my great-grandmother was very stubborn, and she insisted on keeping the, the process that we made ice cream the same. In, 19, in the 1920s, ice cream kind of became commercialized, and, and uh, she didn't want to change, and we're like the last guy around that still makes ice cream this old way. And I think that stubbornness kind of ran through to our, our next generations as we're going to keep on keeping on. So, how, how have you balanced the desire to, to, you know, as time passes and the family grows and people are interested in growing the business, uh, there must be some tension between wanting to, to grow and wanting to continue to do things the way you've always done them. How have, how have you handled that? Well, every generation needs to add something to the business and has. And that's, I think that's probably part of our, our success, why we're still around, is everybody you know, has added something. But you have to, 
really know what not to change. It kind of goes back to Jim Collins and some of his books, uh, Built to Last. So you, got, you need to preserve the core but stimulate progress. So we have always, you know, for us, the core is how we make ice cream. You know, growth could mean uh, having to change how we would do that, and that's tempting because well, the way we make ice cream is really slow and really time-consuming and really expensive, and it kind of keeps us small. So a generation could have decided, you know what, we're going to go big and use the modern technology. I think if we had done that, we might not be here today. So, But you have to pair with that, stimulate progress. And stimulate progress means if, if we know that how we make ice cream is what we don't want to change, well, we can change other things around that. So in 2010, my generation, a few years after taking over, built the first new ice cream plant in three generations. I mean, we were making ice cream in a building that my great-grandmother bought in 1934. And uh, it lasted us for a number of years, but you really can't do that 1934 today. was probably a good year to buy real estate. <laughs> well, ice cream is one of those great things that... Um, it's a little bit counter-cyclical. So in the, in the Great Recession, and the Great Depression, was one of our fastest growth periods. She opened up little ice cream parlors all around town. That's amazing. And in her innovation, so, you know, we made ice cream the way we always did, so that we kept the same. But her innovation was as other neighborhood ice cream parlors went out of business. And back a little bit in the 1910s, 20s, every neighborhood had their own ice cream parlor. You made it in the back, you sold it in the front, and you lived upstairs. And that's what we did. But as the modern ice cream came along and, and made a lot of cheap product and pushed people out of business, what she did was she doubled down on how we made it, but she started supplying the other ice cream parlors or opening other ice cream parlors in other neighborhoods as they shut down, and that was her secret. And it was, you know, so it's something new, but still banking on what you did, which was your core, which is how we made our product. So it's marrying those two together. So then we... In our, in our new ice cream plant in 2010, it's state-of-the-art all around it with this 19th century technology at its core. So preparing our bases and pasteurizing, and uh, it's all, all modern. Uh, in the freezer, we actually have a robot that will build pallets of, of, of the cartons of ice cream, so very modern. My great-grandma did not have a, have a, have a robot in her freezer. <laughs> but um, So all around it, where you can improve quality, you, you'll modernize, but that, that core... That's what we protect. So it's the, the beauty of the and, I think, as Jim Collins says. You, know, you do this, you know, the, the protect the core and stimulate progress, and that's why we're still in business. What, what, what's the core? What's that early technology? Uh, what, what do you do make, to make ice cream the, the old-fashioned way? It's called a French pot freezer. And in the 1800s, everybody did it. And it's basically just a pot that spins inside of a vat of very cold liquid. So to get, to get cream, sugar, and uh, to, to freeze, you have to get way below zero. So it's about 15 below zero. And the spinning pot uh, it makes about two gallons per pot at a time. And the ice cream, when it comes out, is, is very dense. It doesn't have air whipped into it. So modern ice cream machines, it's called a continuous process. The, the, the cream mix will flow in one end, and there'll be like egg beaters inside that'll whip it up into a foam, and it squirts out the other end, and then you put it in a deep freeze over a few hours, and you basically have frozen foam. That's pretty much the way all ice cream is today. But graders with this French pot freezer method, it makes something that's pretty unique. And and um, she just was stubborn and wouldn't change. And, and every generation so far, we've kept to that. So how big have you gotten? Well, when I was a kid, we had 12 retail scoop shops in Cincinnati. And our factory that my great-grandmother opened had four French pots in it. And we probably made... You know, maybe 60,000 gallons of ice cream a year. So today at our new plant, we make uh, probably 1.3 million gallons of ice cream. Um, and people think, well, so those pints are hand-packed, and people think, wow, what's kind of just a story or a myth. We're not really doing that. But we have uh, 37 French pots now. So we didn't make a giant, a bigger machine. We just have a whole bunch of little machines. And uh, with 37 French pots running almost 20 hours a day, we can just about keep up with demand. I'm speaking with Richard Grader, President and CEO of Grader's Ice Cream. We're at the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs. Um, so, Richard, how many employees do you have now? During the summertime, we'll have well over 1,000 because we have 54 retail stores now in nine cities across five states. So we're kind of the 
our goal is to be the, you know, the king of, of ice cream in the Midwest, and I think we kind of are. And uh, so in the summer, we hire a lot of high school kids, so we're the first job for a lot of kids out of, as they're growing up. And um, it's a pretty good job. It's better than flipping hamburgers. Scooping ice cream is kind of cool, <laughs> literally and figuratively. <laughs> Do you say what your revenues are? We're uh, about $70 million now. And what's the, what's the long-term goal at this point? How do you, uh, what do you look at, what's your attitude towards growth now? Well, over the last 10 years, so I said we started with 12 stores, and we were in just a handful of grocery stores, and now we have 54 stores, and we're in probably 6,000 grocery stores. It was a dramatic growth the last 10 years, and our revenues were, gosh, when I was young, it was maybe $5 million a year, and so now we're 70. I'm not looking to do that again quite yet. <laughs> it might be the next generation's turn. So we're looking now to continue opening up stores and um, in the Midwest, maybe maybe the south coast of Florida. Half of Cincinnati goes to Naples in the wintertime, so we might follow them down there. Interesting. And, Interesting. Um, but it, it's careful growth. We're really about careful growth. Um, if we wanted to, sure, we could grow a lot faster. We could franchise. We've actually unfranchised. We used to have a few stores, but we've decided that you know, franchising is kind of a money game, and we don't think we're smart enough to play that game. All we know is we know how to make ice cream, and since that's our core, we decided, well, let's double down and make ice cream, and that's when we built that plant in 2010. And uh, the other thing about that plant is uh, I think one of our, our new cores, uh, or point of differences, is, is food safety. I mean, we just heard uh, a speaker from uh, the chairman of Ecolab talking about food safety today and how important that is. And in my father's day, food safety was him walking around with a gallon of bleach cleaning everything. Today, you know, it's, a, it's a very sophisticated part of our business. And um, I think a lot of smaller-scale businesses struggle with that. And um, something that we do, you know, we're, we're, we're what's called an SQF Level 3 rated company. That's safe quality food. It's kind of an acronym. If you're out of the food industry, you might not know what that. You're familiar with ISO 9000. I have heard that yeah, term. It's, it's kind of like that. I wouldn't that. want to try to explain it. <laughs> it's kind of like that for food safety. So, you know, that's part of what our generation has been able to do is, is modernize this old technology for the 21st century. That's allowed us to continue to compete. So as a fourth-generation family business, how many family members actually work in the business? At the present, it's my two cousins and I, and we are equal partners. And our aunt is technically retired, but she comes to work every single day. And uh, the, the fifth generation, who I'm very you know, hopeful will want to come and follow our footsteps, at least some of them, so we can at some point retire, uh, they're in college, and so they're, they're still working their way up. How many members of the, are there of the fifth generation? I have uh, a daughter and a son, and the, my son, my oldest, is a freshman at Clemson University studying food science technology. Oh, that's a good sign, right? Yeah, well, I told him... Uh, <laughs> If you want to come into the family business, you've got to prepare yourself. You just don't, hey, my last name's greater, I get a job. No, no, no. You have to, you have to bring it. You have to go out and prepare yourself and bring something. Uh, my daughter's still in high school, so but she's thinking about it. And my cousin has three boys, and, and his brother has three girls. And some are interested, and some are not, and that's, that's fine, just as long as hopefully a few are. Does everybody get along? So far. Yes, they do. That's kind of yeah. remarkable. Well, I should say, now my kids bicker like nobody's business, <laughs> but it's over stupid stuff. So. How about within your generation? Have you guys been able to work out a, a good working relationship? We have. Um, and that's not always been true. I mean, it was, let's face it, generational transition is really, really hard. And I think that is the number one reason businesses don't succeed to the second, third, fourth generation is because the transition trips them up. And, uh, I mean, what you have to do is, A, recognize it's really hard, which means you need to start. You can't put it off till the end. You need to start early. And because it's really, really hard, you need to get help. I mean, most generations, when they transition, it's the first and the last time they're ever going to do it. The next generation will go through it, but uh, so you need help. And... Um, and then the final point really is I think you need to involve the next generation. You can't do it for them. You can't say, here's how we're going to transition. Good luck. You need to involve them in the process early on. And uh, that's something we are, you know, we learned the hard way going from three to four. And so my partners and I, we are, 
know, committed to not making it so painful for our kids. So that's part of what we're getting out of the, the, the strategic growth forum here with EY is, is uh, how to do it thoughtfully and carefully and intelligently. So they have a great family business practice here. And we, yeah, as of last, uh, we're, we're using them now. <laughs> so we're getting, we're, we're, we're practicing what I preach. You know, we need, we need help and we're, we're finding it with the folks at EY. Is there um, anything you've learned going through that process that you would um, pass on to others who might be struggling? <laughs> well, basically, get started and, and get help. I mean, that, that really is. Um, and it's not just people think sometimes it's always accountants and lawyers are the folks you need to, to talk to. And that's not true, especially in a family business. You know, think what's the first word there? Family. What's family about? Relationships. I mean, we actually used a, a, a psychologist that specialized in family business relationships to help us deal with uh, some of the issues. And it helped? Hugely. Well, we worked with them for years. <laughs> Our family was so <laughs> so challenged it took them years. But you know, healthy relationships really are the core of a successful business, you know, whether it's family or not. And um, so that's my, my big advice is, don't just think of the traditional uh, accountants and lawyers. Some, uh, some family businesses like to encourage the incoming generation to work somewhere else first before coming into to the family business. Do, have you guys uh, adopted that policy or thought about it? Um, my, both my partners and I worked somewhere else first, and I will insist on, on it. So, yes, I, I think it's, you know, it protects against entitlement. It protects against uh, you know, insularity. I mean, Working for other folks is how you learn, and so we want all of our our next generation to a get education. And it doesn't all have to be just a business degree. I mean, my son is pursuing a food science degree, um, but then work for somewhere else, and then then bring that back to the family. Do you ever feel as though you've? Um, I mean, a place like this, uh, this is such a great conference. It's it's really focused on growth and almost growth at all costs. You're kind of running against that uh, current a little bit. Do you ever feel uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, f- f- fear of missing out? Do you feel like uh, you you pass something up that you would like to have? Well, I guess I'd, I'd be fibbing if I say I don't sometimes look at what others do, but, you know, our, comp- our family has been, has been pretty satisfied with just doing our our things. Kind of hard to argue with the, the results no. after four generations. Um, I think the period we just came through was dramatic growth. I mean, I had years of sleepless nights, and I mean, you know, going from twelve little stores in one city to fifty-four stores in nine cities, and to going from a handful of stores, uh, uh, Kroger stores, to six thousand—not just Kroger, but six thousand sure. grocery stores—that's a lot. Richard Grader, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, If you want to know more about Richard, go to graders.com or at graders on Twitter. We'll be right back with more from the EY Strategic Growth Forum. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 